And so in preparation for the sermon, God is in control, we'll have a number of readings. The first is from Psalm 104. where we read God's word as follows. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendour and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it would never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make the springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell and they sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has a home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badger. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun to know its time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labour until evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you perform to play in it. These all look to you to give them the food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. But bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Once again, a psalm that truly acknowledges that God is God over all, over all creation. 
Uh, let's then turn to Matthew chapter 6. A very familiar section out of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We'll read from verse 25 to 34. Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of those. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all those things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And then we'll continue the reading with uh, Romans chapter 8. Uh, once again, a very familiar and encouraging scripture. And we'll read uh, Romans 8, 28 to 39. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. <coughs> who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. <coughs> no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separa separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is in control. 
Now, one of the things that we can affirm without question as truth is that God is indeed absolutely sovereign. What we sometimes find harder to explain, though, is how that works out in this world, especially when terrible things happen. At those times, we can understand why people would say that they find it hard to believe in a, a loving God who cares for mankind. And look, we may even sympathise with their feelings and be affected by their pain. However, we wouldn't agree that God isn't loving. And that's the dilemma we face as Christians. On the one hand, we confess that God is almighty and sovereign, but how do we know and how do we explain that God loves and that he will provide for us even when there is so much trouble and hardship in the world? Well, to answer this dilemma, the first thing we need to confess as we deal with God's sovereignty and providence is that we are sinful. We are finite human beings. We are not God. We don't know all things. We are not all powerful. And we can't be everywhere at the same time. We are sinful, finite human beings. And that congregation has a number of implications. First, even though we are forgiven sinners in Christ, that doesn't mean that our sin doesn't have consequences. It does. We suffer and people around us suffer and we see the world groan because of our combined sin. We contribute to the toil and trouble and sorrow we see in our families and our communities and this world. Secondly, because we're not all wise and all-knowing or all-powerful, nor do we live all that long in the grand scheme of things, our perspective on this earthly life and what is happening around us is limited. We can't understand fully how an event that might happen today may serve the benefit of God's people in perhaps 30, 50, year, 100 years' time. We can't. But God can. I'm sure that Martin Luther would not have known the full impact that the Reformation in the 1500s would have, would have in the church but God was pleased to use that to build his church and to extend his kingdom. And thirdly, one thing we need to be watchful of when speaking about God's providence is that we don't separate God's providence apart from God. God's providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God. So when tragedy strikes our neighbour or us, we can't say that God wasn't watching for a moment we know that God never slumbers or sleeps. You read that in Psalm 121 verse 4. I think sometimes that our modern technological age prevents us from being close to God. We are taught from when we are knee high to a grasshopper that everything has to have a logic and a scientific reason. And if it doesn't, then it can't be right or true. Now interestingly, the psalmist didn't seem to have that trouble. They recognised God's hand in everything that happened. And the Psalms are full of it. Perhaps the Psalmists were more in touch with God's creation and his providence. Look at the Psalm 104 that we just read. When we read that Psalm with the eyes and understanding of faith, then we can see that the earth is like a great garden that is tended and protected by our Lord. 
So there is no such thing as an accidental rising of the sun, is there? Or an accidental full moon? Or a falling star? Or the discovery of a new planet? It's not an accident that the rains come, or the droughts, or floods, or food, or drink, or prosperity, or poverty, or even life or death. It's all by God's power. Everything, in fact, comes to us, not by chance, but from God's fatherly hand. This is what we believe, and that is also what we sing as God's children. All I have needed, your hand has provided. Even the Lord Jesus, when dying, <coughs> committed his spirit into his Father's hands. And so to confess God's providence is to think about the hands of our Father God, who is in heaven. And yet the real tragedy of our Western world is that most people have a materialistic and secular understanding of God. Secularism and humanism are lines of thinking and have a set of values determined by the world, apart from God. Sadly, this type of thinking is not displayed as a tragedy, but is usually presented as our liberation, our way to freedom. People try to remove God as far as possible when it comes to buying and selling, as far as family planning is concerned, or career choices, and many other things. Look, it's my life, it's my body, it's my money, it's my everything, I'll do with it as I please. And if we dare to have too much God talk, then we're quickly labelled as fanatics or fundamentalists. Of course, maybe it's not as clearly defined as I've just stated it, but it's there just the same. Hence, we have people who hold the view that God created everything, but we now live by natural laws and in the light of our reason. This is known as deism. If you were to ask such people whether they're deists, they'd probably say no. However, if people say that they believe in God but don't think that he has an impact in the day-to-day -day running of this cosmos, including this earth, then they're deists. And in some way, people like it that way because they feel that they can live guilt-free and do whatever they like. Alternatively, some people say God is so close that he cannot be separated from anything. He is in you and me and in all that lives, including the trees in the middle of the forest. Eastern-type religions are quite full of it. Neither of these views are found in Scripture. Scripture teaches us that the world is like a huge palace full of servants in which nothing happens without the king's command. He numbers the stars. God knows them all by name. Isaiah 40, 26. He sends the lightning bolts on their way. He watches over the mountain goat giving birth. He causes seasons to come and go. He feeds the fish, keeps the eyes on the sparrow. Without him, there would be no light. Now, some people will say, well, that's nature. But the word nature doesn't come from a biblical environment. The Bible always speaks about creation. Or the earth, when it speaks about what we call nature, it is wise to keep the word creation in your vocabulary. For when we call the environment creation we are less likely to attach independent existence to it. We acknowledge that it comes from God. Let me also remind you, our God is a personal God. Unlike the deist who thinks that God is unreachable or the pantheist who believes in an impersonal God involved only with the material world and the forces of nature, our God is personal. 
He is our Father. Our God is above nature. Nature doesn't make the laws that govern it. God does. God is the one who causes the sun to rise, the stars to fall, the sparrows to fly. God's reliability makes science possible. Nothing can move or be moved without his will. If God is God, and he is, then he is completely in control. Nothing takes place outside his government. Now look, that doesn't mean that we should just sit back and let things happen because God is in control anyhow. Scripture doesn't teach that at all. Yes, God causes the rain to fall and the plants to grow, but he also has ordained the conditions that are favourable to rainfall and plant growth. God said to mankind in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Now a farmer who doesn't prepare the soil can hardly expect a bumper crop, can he? A person who abuses his body can hardly blame God for it. God has assigned certain responsibilities to us in these processes. So how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? Well, we can be patient in times when things go against us. We should never forget that God is God and we are but finite human beings. Now surely Job wins the medal for patience in scripture. He suffered loss and pain. His friends argued with him. But how did God answer him when Job dared ask God why? We read in Job 38, 4 to 11, God says, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the, mountain, while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the seas behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? And when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no further, here is where your proud waves halt. Or continuing in Job 39, 1 and 2. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch them when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months until they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? In Job 40, verse 4 and 5, Job responds, Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. And he continues in Job 42, verse 1, and 1 to 5. Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Congregation, First, let's be thankful that when things go well and even when things seemingly go against us, that we know that nothing at all in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If that were not so, 
then he would not have sent Jesus to the cross to die for us. He suffered, died and rose again so that we might have life to the Father's glory. Secondly, I don't have to live in fear about tomorrow or the next day or next year. From asteroids in deep space, the sparrows in the air, the hair on our heads, the scripture assures that God is in control of all things. Without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. Therefore, I don't have to live in fear when people suddenly die from illness or heart attack. I don't have to live in fear when the mountains quake and the earth gives way. I don't have to live in fear or without hope when the doctor diagnoses me with something dreadful. For I know that my father is in control and will provide all I need for body and soul in this life and particularly in the next. Let me close. What do we say to our neighbour who has lost a loved one in a tragic accident? Or to the couple who desperately want a child? Or the parent or the patient with a terminal illness? Everything that happens is not always God's will. Sure, we confess that it won't happen outside of his care and control, but it doesn't mean that it's God's will. If a loved one is killed in an accident because of a drunk driver, it would be wrong to say that it was God's will. Driving under the influence of drugs or alcohol isn't God's will. Scripture says don't get drunk with wine. Furthermore, being drunk and not in control of a murder weapon breaks the sixth commandment. And look, don't jump from a tall building and think that God will save you. Now that's nonsense. God's laws of gravity dictate that you will, in all probability, dial from the sudden stop when you hit the ground. Other times, and these are also many, <coughs> we weep with those who weep. For the couple who can't have a child or the terminally ill patient, we weep with them. We don't say that it is because of some hidden sin and send them on a guilt trip. That's not loving or caring. And let me add, anyone who always finds an easy answer with an exact word has probably never experienced such hardship. Look, let's be real and honest. We live in a world that is broken and suffering under the consequences of sin. And we're part of that, as well as the cause. We're not blind, neither are we unbelievers. We see it everywhere. Let me also add that just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we will not feel the brunt of that suffering on occasions. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, <coughs> I will fear no evil, the psalmist says, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now look, we may be able to say that it wasn't God's will. However, we may not deny that whatever happens, it happened in a world that is governed by God and Father of our Lord Jesus who is our Father, and that is grace. God's almighty and ever-present power is a gift to undeserving sinners. God made everything perfect. Yet instead of being thankful and satisfied to be the creature cared for by a loving God, sinful man wanted to be, and be God <coughs> and fell into sin. And over the, even though this sin was punished with the sentence of death, God continued to show his love and grace. He still provided for his creatures, and that is all by grace, no more clearly seen than in the death and resurrection of his son. All those who believe in him as their saviour can know that they are safe in his eternal hands. In fact, even the knowledge that God is there 
and that we may know him is pure grace. And if you think that isn't true, then just look at those who don't trust God. When a catastrophe strikes or even threatens, they don't know where to go or who to turn to. Congregation, when that happens, may we remind them of God, our Father, who through Christ is making all things new. Amen.